Welcome to the Beyond the Box Tour podcast, brought to you in part by Fast Model Sports. In this episode, I interview Coach Brian Bender. He's the head men's basketball coach at Ellsworth Community College. Coach, how's it going? Good, how are you? Doing well, my friend. Want to give yourself a brief introduction to our listeners? Uh, nope, I'm good. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, of course. So I'm Brian Bender. I am the head men's basketball coach at Ellsworth Community College in Iowa. I uh, just got this job in April of 2022. So uh, going on, what, four months on the job. I uh, really enjoyed it. I got my start in basketball. I knew I wanted to be a coach when I was a young kid. Um, was not always the tallest one out there. I was really fast. I could shoot it, but that was about it. So I knew my playing career wasn't going to take me very far, but I was watching a uh, Wisconsin Badger basketball game when I was in high school. I'm a Madison, outside Madison guy, uh, not a Badger fan. I'm a gopher through and through, but I was watching the game. Tanner Brunson is a walk-on and was a former manager, and he made the team, and he was out there, and they did a little documentary at like halftime or something on him. And I was like, that's who I want. I want to do that. That sounds really cool. So uh, when I started looking at colleges – I was thinking elementary ed and coaching or physical education coaching and uh, knew I really wanted to coach college ball, but didn't think it was obtainable. So what I ended up doing is uh, going to the University of Minnesota. I was very fortunate, got on with the basketball team that summer, begged, 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 didn't get on, fall, begged, 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 didn't get on. Um, and then like a week before the season started, like mid-October, um, you know, a spot opened up and they hired me and I haven't done anything since. So, you know, literally... This is year 18 in college basketball. I was a manager in Minnesota. I worked for Dan Munson and Jim Molinari and then Tubby Smith, and he kept me on as a GA. Then I was a video coordinator in Minnesota. Did that for a few years, interviewed at endless jobs, high school head jobs, D2 assistant jobs, D1 assistant jobs, director of ops, you name it. Um, I was only offered one job throughout that whole process, and I turned it down. I was at Jamestown in the NAI school with Justin Wick, who's now at Minnesota Duluth. Um, and then Tubby and the staff, we ended up getting fired, uh, beat UCLA in the NCAA tournament and still got fired. So crazy story. Uh, I knew I wanted to coach. And so during those times, I hadn't coached, hadn't recruited. So I went the JUCO route, uh, went to a Division I junior college called Missouri State West Plains, was there for one season, uh, not even a whole year, was a dorm director there, taught credits at the school. And I feel like I'd stage that because that's kind of what I do here. But uh, for a lot more money than what I was making there. So, um, but was there for one year, had 12 division one players on that squad, uh, inherited a really good team, signed a couple kids, learned how to recruit. Chad Van Reesen is now the head coach at Iowa Western and Yancey Walker. Uh, but Chad was one of the best recruiting coaches I've ever been around, and he still is. And um, now I compete against him. He's in our league, so that'll be fun this year. But uh, Chad taught me a lot about recruiting, how to recruit, things like that. Got on at App State with Jim Fox, who was kind of an up-and-coming rising star in the profession. Uh, New York guy, was at Davidson, recruited Steph Curry. Um, we inherited a program that was a debacle. Um, changed leagues, we're on APR band. We couldn't practice more than five days a week. Uh, couldn't get transfers into school um, in a transfer time. And then we moved to the Sun Belt, so we went up leagues. Um, it, was, it was a rough couple of years. Did the best we could. We had some really good kids. And then, um, you know, after three years there in the operations role, the rules hadn't changed yet. So I really wanted to coach again. And a good friend of mine, Thomas Gray, was at Southwest Mississippi Community College. Andy Farrell was assistant there. I got like a two-month head start knowing Andy was going to go to Dayton, but it wasn't public. And, uh, you know, Thomas basically said, if you come here, 
um, you know, prep your wife. You can come down to Mississippi, get a full-time job, give you a house with a job. It's a good assistant paying job, get you back on the road. And uh, he's like, I wouldn't be surprised if in a year I left. And when you hear that and you go into a position where you have a chance to be a head coach in a year, um, sometimes your mindset changes a little bit. So I went in there with that indication of like, hey, every day I'm going to treat this job like a job interview. And uh, 10 months later, I was a head coach. And uh, he went to Ole Miss with Kermit Davis. And I was head coach there the last four seasons. Um, did some really cool things there. Had the, the highest win in school history, beat the number two team in the country. Um, we had a couple of postseason wins. We um, led the country in Division One freshmen. So we had 10 players leave our program for Division One schools after one year, which leads the nation. Um, you know, a lot of data. We were top three in GPA in the country every year that I was a head coach there, um, which was pretty remarkable. I had a 100% graduation rate, 100% placement rate. And in my five years at JUCO, I guess six, six years of junior college, if you count the West Plains year, um, I've been really fortunate. I've had 65 four-year players, which is probably one of the most in the country. Uh, 41 Division One players and I think nine top 100 players. And um, so I took this job here in Iowa, um, got out of some restrictions that we had in Mississippi. Um, my family, you know, as I'm getting older, I'm married. I have a two-year-old. Being closer to home was valued. Being back in the Midwest was valued. Um, you know, start a program with less restrictions and be able to dip into recruiting ties that I'd never been able to. So internationally, we've been able to recruit 11 international students on this year's team that we're about to coach and um, was told by a lot of people not to take this job. And uh, I believed in my abilities to recruit and uh, they threw a little bit more money into the pot and helped me get a full-time assistant and uh, just basically started over. Didn't bring anybody with me, didn't bring any players with me. I only brought one kid from Mississippi, but he's technically from uh, Australia and I just known him since he was 14, nice kid. And he's going to be on our roster this year, but um you know, started over and uh, really excited to get to do it my way, how I want to do things, all the mistakes I made in my past, you know, good, bad, ugly, anything, you know, on the floor, off the floor, all that stuff uh, is behind me. And I grew from it and I learned from it. And uh, I'm really excited to be here around really good people. And uh, yeah, we get started. I think we, we started school, um, you know, just just recently here and already get started. Awesome. And you mentioned you're a student manager at Minnesota and a mutual friend of ours, Tubby Smith, uh, was at the University of Minnesota. Who were the guys on staff back then? And initially, did you have any sort of connection to the program or any of the guys? I know you said you, you know, reached out about getting on, but any kind of connections you had? So I'm just a random guy, I guess. I The, the one, so it's kind of insider. Um, he'll tell the story and I'll tell the story. It's like a little bit different, but I'll let him have his story. But this is what happened. So my uncle, his name is Paul Strong. Um, he played football at Minnesota. He was really good friends with Melvin Newborn. Melvin played. He's one of the top assist guys ever at, at Minnesota. And um, my uncle reached out to Melvin. Melvin gave me the basketball office phone number. Um, James Ware was the director of operations at the time. Vic Couch was on, on staff. He passed a few years back. Uh, Dan Munson, Jim Molinari, and Bill Walker, uh, who's a Division II coach in Missouri now. Dan Munson's still at Long Beach. And uh, Jim Molinari is at Boston College. And, um, yeah, James hired me on. And 
that year, James left, Brent Lawson came in, um, and Nico Medved. So Nico was like the, he actually took my job. Crazy story. So they told me when I left after my freshman year, they're going to give me a raise and I was going to be the video guy. Cause I was the only one that knew how to use a computer. And, uh, they had like a $10,000 stipend. And instead of giving me a scholarship, they said, well, we're going to give you this stipend. So I was basically a part-time worker at 19. So I go home for the summer. I'm working my job. I come back. They're like, yeah, I'm sorry. You don't have a job anymore. And I was like, what just happened? Like I needed this money. This is like, I was banking on this money. And uh, I wouldn't say it was dirty because like, you know, I'm a kid. They don't, I don't know any different. You know, I probably misunderstood or something, but he, uh, again, my office, quote unquote, and Nico Medved's in there. And I don't know Nico at all. I don't know what he could do, but that dude could talk on the phone. I mean, that guy is probably one of the smoothest talkers ever. And what's crazy, full circle, Paul Strong's son, Josiah Strong was one of the top grad transfers in the country. And he went to Colorado state, um, just signed there. And he's going to be a really good year this year, but um, Nico and I shared an office like five games in, we lose, we went on a terrible spring. Like we, we blew a lead with Iowa state and we went to Orlando, lost to Marist, Montana and Southern Illinois at Minnesota, which is not good. And we came back and got blitz in the big set, big 10 AC challenge by Clemson. I think we lost by like 28, 30 points, something like this at home. So the next day Munson gets fired and uh, Jim Molinari takes, takes over uh, one of the assistants leaves. And so Nico becomes an assistant, Brent Lawson becomes an assistant. And all of a sudden I'm like the, me and the secretary were like the operations people. So I was doing video, I was doing operations. I'm a sophomore. I went on every road trip, traveled with the team, like, and was one of the managers. And then that summer, all the managers basically left. So I was like uh, the oldest guy as a head manager as a junior and Tubby came in. And so Tubby came in, he brought a whole new staff. Um, Joe Esposito was a director of ops. Joe is now at UMKC or whatever you call this school now. I think they just changed the name, but he's the top assistant at UMKC with Marvin Menzies. Ron Jersa, who was a former head coach at Marshall, Georgia, um, been literally everywhere. If you look up his Wikipedia, I think the dude never spent more than six years in any place, but like literally it was like every year he changed jobs. And he most recently resigned, not resigned, he retired um, UNC Greensboro and was with Coach Jones. And then who else is on his staff? Vince Taylor. Um, Vince got out a couple years ago, but he, you know, went with, played in the NBA, played at Duke, uh, coached for the Knicks for a while, Timberwolves, uh, Louisville, Pittsburgh. I mean, he was one of the best, um, traveled around and was at UCF most recently. And then Saul Smith was Tubby's son, uh, who won a national title at Kentucky. Um, he got out of coaching and who else was on that staff during that time? So, Steve. Zoe Goodson. Yeah. Zoe, um, Zoe and I shared an office together. Uh, Zoe came with coach from Kentucky and he's now the head coach at Rhodes College in Memphis Division three school. So um, and Ryan Saunders was a GA. It, we had we had some guys come through there. Dan DeWitt, who was the GA, uh, who was head coach at NAI for a while. You know, we had a lot of guys and then a lot of high school managers, too, which is kind of crazy. Like Tyler B. Wan, I was the best man at his wedding. He's a head coach at a high school in the metro of Minneapolis, done a really good job. Andre Phillips, another one. Um, you know, guys that have got it into coaching um, that were managers with us. Um, really, really cool stuff. That's awesome. You know, you really worked your way up the ladder at Minnesota. You guys are part of six postseason appearances, including three to the NCAA tournament, three to the NIT. Yep. Talk about the added responsibilities of each role. And you alluded to, you know, mistakes you might have made over the years. What were some early on that have helped you become a better coach during your career? 
I think the, I don't brag on it now. Okay. Like I really am a hard worker and I've become a better focused worker. I guess my wife would probably beg to differ, but I've become more focused and it helps me be more present, which in essence, I'm more productive and I have better leadership skills. So over time, that's what's evolved probably the most in my 18 years. What gave me extreme advantages was I was a dedicated worker. I worked for little to no money at first and it worked its way up. I've taken two pay cuts to go down a level to get a better position, which in essence has helped me progress my career. And I would say just like not falling behind. What I mean by that is I've always invested in myself. I've always been, I'm in a unique age. So I was, you know, uh, I was born in the late 80s. And so I, I guess I'm tech literate, but I'm not disconnected. Like I'm not old, but I'm not young, but I know how to do both sides. So I can really relate to the older generation, but I could also really relate to the younger generation. And I'm up to the times in all technology. And I think learning video, being at the ground stages of synergy, scouting, um, I haven't quite done the Photoshop stuff, but I've always had someone that could do it. Um, but your ability to talk, and I think staying up with the times technology wise and not being stuck in my ways has really helped me progress my career as a manager, as a GA, as a video guy, as an assistant, as an operations guy, as another assistant, as a head coach. And so I've literally worn every hat. And I think as you kind of progress through your career, you get better at a lot of things. But where I know I've evolved is as a leader and being able to manage people and manage myself. And I think I've become a lot more intentional than I was in my past of clarity. And I think clarity gives you power. So when you do those things, I like if I could go back and talk to the managers that I worked with and like how I treated them. And, you know, I, I was just all about business and getting things done. And I think now it, as I've gotten older, I just care more about people. And I'm, I find ways to connect in a way where I figure out how you click and what, what makes you go. And so, you know, those things combined, I want, I want to make sure that I make people, it's not always how they feel, but, you know, they know that I care and that I'm in it for the right reasons and want to have their backs. Love it. You know, 2013 Golden Gophers are ranked in the top 25, knocked off UCLA in the second round of the NCAA tournament. I've obviously never been a part of March Madness. So what was it like to be a part of the madness? And did the level of success you guys had at Minnesota make you think winning at a high level in college basketball was going to be easier than it really is? I work, One of my assistants at Southwest, Reggie Chambers, uh, probably still one of the best player coaches I've ever seen. Reggie is now a Coleman. Reggie would always say winning is hard. He'd say it all the time. Winning is hard. Winning's hard. Coach, you got to celebrate every win. Winning's hard. And I, and I kind of took it for granted. And, and one thing that's crazy is so every year in my career, we've started really well. I mean, a few years here that we didn't, but like we were really good in November and December. We didn't lose a bye game in Minnesota in six years, which is crazy to think about. And um, in those times, like going to the NCAA tournament is like the pinnacle of, you know, I guess college basketball, that moment we were a bubble team once and our name popped up and it was freaking awesome. You get, I still get chills thinking about it. 
and the draw and the the drama that goes along with it and the brackets and where you were going we were going to milwaukee one year and i'm from wisconsin like that was like the coolest thing and you know can we beat this team can we make a run then you win a game and that 24 hour span 48 hours i guess is like the coolest thing ever we made one run in the big 10 tournament um where we went all the way to the championship game and lost to ohio state but we literally every night i did the scout with the assistant we were up till three, four in the morning. And like, it was just a fun, you know, time. And, and I wouldn't trade it for the world. And it, it was very impactful and taught you a lot of different things. And it's worth all the hard work that kind of went into the season without being attached to outcomes. But, you know, I haven't won a championship in 18 years. You know, won a couple of NTs and, you know, different things. But, you know, we lost in a championship at the NIT and you know made a couple of NCAA tournament runs and you get a ring for that but like I've never won a championship and like that's kind of one thing in the back of my mind is like hey sometimes you're judged by wins and losses in our career or you are and um, I've done a lot of really cool things but that's one thing that you know not saying that would complete my career because there's a lot of things that would but I want to win one I want to know what it feels like and you know I believe wholeheartedly that your behaviors come before your success and you know I've invested a lot of time and energy and a lot of people in myself and you know, I think in time that will, that will eventually, I guess, quote unquote, pay off, even though that's not the end all tell off, but, you know, I think it'll eventually take care of itself. No doubt. 2013-14, you're hired as an assistant coach, Missouri State University, West Plains. You helped 12 of your players, like you said, get on to the D1 level. What was that first taste of JUCO life? And when was the moment it hit you that you were not chartering flights or kind of having that Big Ten operating budget? I think so. It was right when Instagram started. It was like 2012, 13, I think was that year. And we, uh, I remember one of my first posts was went from charter planes to driving the van to Texas like 10 hours. And it, I wouldn't say it still ever hit me because I, I don't, of course, the charter flights and different things like it's cool and you like eat like seven meals and you just get fat. Um, but like, it's crazy to think that, um, you know, it's very humbling. But at the same time, basketball is basketball. And you'd be surprised, like, the life is a quote-unquote easier, but there's more pressure, but there's different types of pressure. But it's still players. It's still 18 to 23-year-old young men that need you, and um, your impact is needed in different ways. Some, you know, maybe academically, some in their life, some may just be strictly basketball business. Some may not need you at all. Um, But, like, yeah, driving those vans, uh, you know, going from bag lunches in a Ziploc bag of chicken strips with a piece of bread to be your bun is, you know, like compared to Jimmy John's on the bus, a catered meal on the plane, and you get off and you go to a, a Marriott five-star hotel in a city and you, you got a meal there. And then at late night, you get chicken fingers and ice cream sundaes. And yeah, the food's different. The life's different. The hotel bed's different. At the end of the day, basketball's basketball. And so you know, I've really enjoyed the Juco level. Um, I think it's really helped me become a better coach because it's accelerated. Like, and that's what I think if I ever did go back to the division one level, it would really help me in this transfer portal market because in our society, we want things faster. And that's how been my career. Like I've had more one and done players than anybody else in the nation. And by being able to accelerate relationships and growth and development, um, is what I would consider myself an expert in. And so, you know, all those things I think are, are really good um, things that I learned at the Duke level to help me, you know, continue to advance my career. Gotcha. 
you know, July of 2014, you joined the coaching staff at App State, serving as the Dobo. What roles did you have as far as what Coach Fox utilized the Dobo spot for up in Boone? Good question. So it was a weird, the hiring was like the most unique thing ever. So I've only gotten one job in my career that I interviewed for, and it's the one that I'm at now. And Fox, I tried to get on as assistant. I tried and I tried. I knew Matt McKillop better. And I tried and wouldn't hear anything back. Saw him at the Final Four. I was like, hey, man, I'd love to join your staff if you get this job because it was like on Hoop Dirty River to get it. And um, so he never hit me. And so I was talking to Matt McKillop. He's giving me some insider information. He's like, well, they have this former player that's debating if he's going to go overseas or take the ops job. And uh, he ended up not taking the ops job. And so out of the blue, he calls me and he's like, hey, would you be interested in the ops job? And I was like, huh? Like, didn't interview nothing. Just called me. He's like, would you want to be interested in the ops job? And I was like, yeah, what's the pay? He told me the amount. I was like, okay. He goes, I'll soon be here. I said, I'll be there in by the end of the week. He's like, seriously? I was like, yeah. He goes, well, the job doesn't start until July 1. It was like mid-May. I was like, I'll be there. I don't care. Like, you're going to pay me that, and I'm coming. I'll find a place to live. And I had a week to find a place to live. Like, you all was good for a week. Um, but he basically said, hey, you know, within the rules, you'll be my fourth assistant. You'll be an assistant in waiting type. Um, I use our ops guys, you know, as basketball coaches. I'm not really looking for, you know, every ops position is different, whether it's you just do scheduling or you're admin or you're like a basketball secretary or maybe you're the old guy that's like the wise guy and don't do anything or maybe you're the video guy we're we're a lot of hats and in that job coach fox is probably the most detailed human i've ever met in my life and it changed my life in a good way but it was really hard um and i think like just the overall pressures of every little detail controllable and uncontrollable were like my responsibility and I'm like a person that cares and so there was days where that took a toll on me and there's other days where um you know I really enjoyed the job and I learned a lot about certain things that really helped me um, very detailed obviously the Davidson system that we ran offensively was really really unique um cut screens how to use traffic how to do different things offensively that were really impactful um his scouting was like so detailed like we would put scouting reports and we built the template and i was responsible for building the template i was the video guy with the guy that shared an office with me we split like video duties mark polsgrove who's now at bethel in indiana he actually uh met his wife at my wedding and uh he's now like my cousin um but me and mark are we're like literally running the you know the operation and uh it was really enjoyable um but you know i did all the travel i did all the budget did a lot of stuff with the Booster Club, uh, video, academics, uh, did some scouting. And uh, he let me do a lot. And then there was a couple of times one of our assistants had a baby. And so he was out for like two weeks and I was able to go on the road a couple of times. Um, I was kind of the transcript guy. So at junior college, you learn how to do transcripts. And I'm just uh, like, if anyone ever needs a transcript evaluator, just send it my way. I'll tell you what they need and what they don't need or how to get credits or any of that stuff. I think that's kind of a, an art form that not many people know about, but um, that's kind of what I did at app. I, I enjoyed it. The director of ops role I did. I think now I would enjoy it more because you can either coach or recruit. There's like, you can kind of mix and match. Um, I'm not jealous or envious of that, but I think it would have changed maybe my path. Maybe not. I wouldn't change it how I done it. Like I can't go back and change it, 
and I've learned a lot along the way. But I think that now with those extra positions and more money, um, I may have stayed in Division One instead of jumping to the junior college circles. But you know, I I did thoroughly enjoy it, and uh, I'm very thankful that I've been a head coach for five years. I'm only 35, so like now down the road, you know, the average Division One coach is 41 and a half years old. So you know, I still have six years to, I guess, reach a goal that I would have, but. You know, I'm really happy here and I'm two feet in and I really enjoyed it. And I got a team that, you know, every, not every year you have a chance to win a national title. And I think the group that I have with my coaching staff, we have a chance to do so. Definitely. You know, you, you mentioned Mark, but you had an opportunity to work closely with Ryan Lentz, Jason Allison, and Torres Robinson as well. Yep. How nice was it to have a staff like that looking back that was pretty loaded as far as a single bid conference goes? Yeah, so one big league, you know, Sunbelt, a lot of changes every year, flipped, different things. Um, I'll start with Lentz. So Lentz obviously is at Tennessee now. Um, he grew up in it. Lentz could play at 40 years old, man. That dude could really still play, handle the ball. Really enjoyed Lentz. He was one that was just like a natural basketball brain, um, could go out and do scouts without much preparation. And, like, I always envy that. Him and Saul. So both guys that played Division One or – Let's play division two, but it was a D one player, but he, they were both like true point guards and they freaking knew how to like, they knew basketball. Um, Manny was, uh, I think he was a year younger than me, maybe. Um, but he was an assistant. And so we were very much peers. And so like, we worked really well together and he just got out of Youngstown, um, and was at ETSU. He's been college at Charleston and he's kind of bounced around a little bit, but, um, you know, I really enjoyed working with Manny. He was a heck of a player too. Defensively, he was all league at Winthrop. He worked for or played for Greg Marshall at Winthrop. So, you know, Manny really knew defensive schemes. Um, he was always kind of on scout team. That dude could play too. Like we we had some good players, man, that were coaches. Um, and then Jason is probably, you know, I'm I'm close to all those guys. Um, but Jason's who I talk to the most regularly. He just got on at Drexel. I actually talked to him today. Um Jason is uh, probably one of the best recruiters I've ever been around in a unique way. Um, he just always kind of knew players. He kind of knew who was out there. He knew how to get them. He knew how to build a roster. And he was, I, I would say, you know, obviously Coach Fox is the head coach. And, uh, but Jason was our primary recruiter and did majority, I would say like 85% of the recruiting. And we had a league, all league player every year that he would sign. So Ron Chaj Baz, Adrian Delph. Um, you know, Justin Forrest back to back to back years. And those are the guys that were, you know, Justin and Adrian helped them get to the NCAA tournament, you know, with Coach Kern. So like we laid a foundation. We had some really good players. Um, and he had a unique system because he came from VMI, who is a very unique uh he worked for Duger. And he would like, he'd always have like really good ideas, but we did things a certain way, the Davidson way, and it never really deviated much. But we had Sunbelt players, but we played a system. And so it wasn't always perfect. But I think in time, you know, just a break or two here or there, uh, a missed shot. We lost some crazy games that would have changed a few things where we probably could have made a run and things aligned just a little bit different. But you can't change that again. But, yeah, good staff. Uh, I enjoyed working with them daily. But Jason's who I'm, you know, I talk to Jason just all the time. I, I really enjoy him and I'm really excited that he got back into basketball because he had a two-year hiatus from it. Following season, you move over to Southwest, um, join Coach Gray's staff. What what was the 
what played into that decision to move on over there and talk about working for Coach Gray. Yeah, uh, I've known Thomas for a long time. And in this profession, uh, you come across a lot of different people. But Thomas has always been a person that I've always enjoyed getting to know. How I got to know him so well is he worked one of our camps, the Tubby Smith basketball camp, and the dude freaking lost his camp check that we gave him in the Mall of America, the largest mall in the world, and uh, just misplaced it. So we talked a bunch to get him a new check. We had to cancel the other one and void it and, uh, and all that kind of stuff. But got to know Thomas and Andy Farrell, obviously. So funny story, I was leaving to go to App State. I'm in U- my U-Haul. So it's like a 14-hour drive pulling my little Malibu. And I'm driving. And my phone rings and it's Thomas. And Thomas is like, hey, you know, I've always trusted your opinion. Um, I was just offered the job at Southwest Mississippi to be the head coach. And he's assistant at UT Martin at the time. And um, he asked if he should take it. And I was like, dude, if you can be a head coach at 28, I know you haven't been at D1 and you've only been there for three, four months. I said, I would take that job because it's hard to go back. You know, it's hard to not to be a head coach at any age is hard. And uh, he goes, would you come with? The call prior to that was with Andy Farrell, and Andy had just got let go at Longwood. And um, weird situation, but he's like, do you know anyone else that would be wanting the job? And if I hadn't talked to Andy prior, I don't know if I would have come up with the name, but it's an Andy Farrell. And uh, so then here we are three years later, and Andy's ready to leave. And he's like, dude, I learned so much here. I got to do so much. I basically were like, we were like co-head coaches. You need to come here and get this experience yada 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 and then joe esposito who was from you know that was with me he was like my basketball dad i joke about it all the time and uh i was like his fourth fifth kid because you know i was young and spent every day in his office um but joe had just signed a kid from there mike parks and he knew about it he's like yeah you gotta go down there like it's nice like go and so i did um Worked for 10 months for Thomas, learned a lot, did scouts a really unique way. Um, you know, it was a good working relationship. He was he was hard on me, but in a good way. He always challenged my thinking. Um, he was a lot, I, I hate to say, like, I don't know how to say this in the right way. He used his leadership style. A lot of it was spiritual, which is something that I had never worked with before. Like, Tubby was religious, and we would pray before the game. You know, Coach Fox went to a Catholic high school, and, like, you know, he would do different things. You know, Yancey Walker is pretty religious, but like Thomas was like another level. And so when you, when you, we would pray before practices, games, um, when guys would mess up, a lot of it was biblical verses and different things. And that was a unique adjustment and learn a lot about faith and different things as well. So, you know, there's a lot of positive things I took from Southwest. We did some really cool things there, developed a lot of players and started that. Um, we faced a lot of adversity, you know, we, we, Started really hot, came back, lost a few games. Our team got the flu. We had like six guys one game. Like it was crazy. Um, you know, it was before COVID um, where that was actually like normal. Um, but, you know, it was a fun year. Enjoyed it. Had a lot of good players. Learned a lot. And then I became a head coach. And that that interview was weird than any other one. Went into the president's office. He said, hey, you know, uh, we're looking for – you know, a new head coach, you'd be interested. And I said, sure. And he slid like a little sticky note and had a dollar amount on it. It was the job's yours. He went out like, yep. I walked out of there and I, he asked me one question. He goes, is there anything else you want or need? And I was like, oh, like inside, I'm like, 
I was thinking that I it could have gone either way. I could have been like not retained, or I was gonna get the job, or I was gonna be like told what was gonna happen next. And uh, so the only thing I want is you know there's this dorm position that was kind of like a part time, full time assistant job, and uh, I was like if we could just keep that men's basketball that would be like huge for me because if you have two full time assistants in essence at a junior college that's like liquid gold, and so you know we were able to keep that position. I walked out of there. And uh, yeah, it, it was. I was the head coach. Walked out of there. I was like, "Woohoo!" Now it's time to get to work. And luckily, we had signed um, a few good players, and we were really close on some other ones. And I was able to retain the whole recruiting class, which you know doesn't always happen. Um, but I went the second I got the job. Within a week period, I went to see every kid that we either signed or that we were close to signing, and just drilled it home and sealed the deal. And uh, it worked out really well. And then we, we signed two out of staters after I got the job. Um, we had one signed already and he ended up going to NC state, but I was the lead recruiter on that one too. So it was good. It was good. Um, you talked about, you know, retaining all the recruiting class and I'm just curious, was it easier to walk into your first head coaching job with a roster made up of guys that you played a large role in recruiting? It was great, but it was hard. Here's why. As an assistant, you recruit a certain way. I'm not saying I change how I approach things as a head coach now, but maybe it's a conversation. Uh, maybe it's like you do not walk that line, but like maybe a, a joke here that you could say as an assistant, you don't say as a head coach, um, you know, things like that. But your role changes because as an assistant, you're a strictly a relationship person. You don't always have the role of being the disciplinarian. And one thing I've struggled with as a head coach is that role. Um, I would say that was one of my, it still is one of my weaknesses is, you know, total accountability within discipline. And that's why it's one of my core values now in different aspects, but you know, the accountability factor was always a challenge for me. And so that was the biggest adjustment. And so when I was, when my new staff came in, um, and then my other assistant left that summer or within a couple of weeks said, you know, full-time D2 job open. Then I knew the head coach and he took it. So, um, I said, yeah, it'd be great. And so I got to start over. We only had three players from the previous year. The rest were guys I recruited. And so when the staff started in July, August, September, none of them recruited any of the players. So literally every player, I either coached them in that last year. So three guys or 12 new ones. And so I was everybody's guy. And that's hard. That's really, really hard. And it worked until we faced like major adversity. The crazy thing is, is we didn't face adversity till second semester. We started 10 and 12 and one, 12 and one, both top 25. Um, and then we had, it was crazy. Our team was stacked. One of my, my best player tore his knee. Then we had um, a group of three guys, NC State, Southern Miss and uh, UCF all get in trouble and they were suspended five games. And so we went one and four during that stretch only had eight players. And then like when they came back, it messed up chemistry and we just never quite turned the corner. And a lot of it was disciplinary stuff, behaviors, things like that. We had a kid quit over Twitter. That was a D1 player. Um, we had our, our last game of the year is crazy. We win the game. We go to the playoffs, win the game. And, uh, it was sophomore night and 
we had shoot around and I had rules and I don't have these rules anymore just because of like different things. But like, I have standards, don't get me wrong. But it was like, if you were late to something that was practice related, like you would sit a certain segment, like miss your first segment or whatever. And so three guys went to go get haircuts and they didn't come to shoot around. Like the wildest thing that you could have thought of. And they were three freshmen. One goes to UW Milwaukee, one goes to Western Illinois, and the other one signs, uh, had D1 offers, but then, you know, ended up going Division Two, got hurt. And so we went into the game, I was, you know, I wasn't going to play them or play them at half, but we were up by like 20 at halftime. And we ended up blowing the lead. We lose the game in the last minute. And uh, just the wildest, like, year of my life, just my first year as a head coach, the experiences I went through, the growth that I went through, dealing with problems, all those types of things. And we had 91 players on the team. And we were 12 and 11. No, 13 and 12. So we started 12 and 1, and we finished, what, 2 and 9? Crazy. Like, craziest turn of events. Like, we had a, a national-type caliber team. And uh, it just never came together in so many different ways. And some of it was controllable. Some of it was not controllable. And, like, how you handle those issues – uh, result could have resolved so many different things and we had some crazy stuff go down like not just off the floor but on the floor just like luck calls crazy goal tens like just just nuts stuff that happened um how, how you have a full head of hair baffles me no, it's, it's going away right here a little bit no i that's just year one did three more years of this nonsense no i i, I love juco I love my players. Each year was different. Each year, a new story. And I really like my group now. I know that I got better kids than I've ever had. And we're pretty talented. But, like, you have an issue with every team. It's how you resolve those issues when you do face adversity. Do you break or do you break records? Do you, how you handle it? How's the relationship with those people? And I feel like what I know now compared to five years ago is night and day. How I lead, how I implement our core values, what I believe in, just all of it. Uh, encompassing and I'm not saying I'm all wise and everything you know I'm 35 years old I got another 35 years left in me but it's there's a lot that goes into winning you talked about before like you don't ever take it for granted and uh you just have to have you know sometimes the stars have to align but you do need good players and good people and that's the one thing that I have um, really filtered with and one of the reasons why I took this job here was because I could pick the people that I wanted instead of from like a small pea sizes group. I could recruit the whole world and um, I think it'll benefit me. We'll see. Maybe you have me back on it. Um, March, you can see. 2018, I was reading your bio and you guys played Pearl River, spotted them a 34 point second half lead. What type of locker room speech and timeout huddles did you have to erase the deficit and make history for the largest comeback in college basketball history? Talk a little bit about Thomas and his uh, religious beliefs. Thomas never swore. If, if we swore, cussed, we had to do push-ups. Coaches included, like, I didn't even do some push-ups. That, at halftime, I remember we were sitting on the training room table. Like, there was, like, a little side room. It was, like, our side, like, little closet. And uh, Thomas looked at me and goes, what do we say? I was like, oh, no, man. Like, we're down by 25 at halftime. Prover was really good. Uh, we just didn't make shots. We turned it over. It wasn't good. And so we went in the locker room and it was really weird. We had a kid named Roydell Brown. Roydell was um, a D1 transfer, really talented, a little too cool. 
a little too cool for school. And like we played dodgeball earlier in the year, didn't want to play. Just sat on the side. Like we're like, this dude ain't gonna make it, man. And he slowly over time kind of learned how to lead. And when he left JUCO, he knew how to lead, he knew how to communicate, and he had a really good career. And he's still playing. But I just remember we like walked in there and Roydell was like not like making sure everybody didn't give up. Like just make like just talked about like, hey, we gotta keep fighting. We came out and they went on like a 10-0 run to start the half and like down 34. I think it was 14 minutes left when this occurred. And um, so we started pressing. And we didn't press a lot. We we played like full court man a lot, but we played a one-two-two. And for some reason, Pearl couldn't break it. And it was like dunk after dunk after dunk. Hit a couple threes. Also, we're down like 20. And like the whole building kind of like felt it. You know, like in basketball, you feel the momentums and it was going. So we're down like 20 with like 10 minutes left. And we are chipping away. And we have this kid named Alexa Dobry Jevich. Crazy story. Like six days before school started, we had a kid committed to or signed with us. And he signs at Eastern Michigan. He's 6'8, 250, named Bud. So we didn't have any, you only get three out of staters, man. And six days before school started, there's no size. So we took the biggest kid we could find. He was a Serbian kid. He was six seven, skinny as a rail. We're like, can you play some four? Like, we just need a four man. This dude hit like two threes, and not to like it at Southwest Mississippi. Like majority of your demographic in the building, other than the students, was white. And so when the white kid hit a three, like the building had like another octave. It was like when Joe Mauer would come to bat at a Twins game, and every girl screamed. Like, it was just a different level of, like, everything. And it just got us going. And he hit a couple threes. We were playing so freaking hard and just came back and won the game. And they ran out of timeouts. They couldn't break our press. He was getting mad. He sweated through his whole jacket. Coach Oni was it, – it was funny, man. It was funny. And we ended up winning the game by four. And everyone in that building stayed. I don't know what's wrong with them, but they stayed. And they cheered. And it was, it was an awesome atmosphere. And I got a little – it's not in this office. I got another office, but in my other office, I got a poster of it and we like put it together and it was like Duke versus Kentucky and there's all, all these biggest comebacks. But then like a year later, it was, the record was beaten. So it was the largest comeback and then like Canisius broke it or something. I guess like Niagara or something like a year later, but we don't tell that story. No, nah, don't worry about it. Fast Model is the premier company in basketball software. Whether it's finding the perfect drills plays for your teams, or creating customized scattering reports and practice plans, FastModel is a must-have for coaches of all levels. Your players will have sets available on their computers and mobile devices. Whether you use FastDraw or FastScout, if you want to be an elite coach, then you need to use elite software, and FastModel is a one-stop shop. Be sure to check out FastModelSports.com and use the promo code BOXSCORE for 15% off your purchase. Box score, all capital letters, B-O-X-S-C-O-R-E. You touched on it briefly, but talk about your core values and where you developed your coaching philosophy over the years. A lot of time, a lot of hard work. Um, my assistant coach, my second and third year um, at Southwest. So I was head coach there for four, so second and third. And assistant, his name's Vince Thibodeau. Um, Vince 
is done. Like Vince was like the smartest dude I've ever met. And Vince is one of my best friends. And uh, Vince came as a volunteer. He would day trade in the mornings. Uh, saved up a bunch of money and just needed a job. And uh, hired him on. I was like, this dude's overqualified. He was a dobo at BMI. And Vince came in and he's the best leader I've ever been around. He related to players better than anyone I've ever met. And he always would ask me, like, hey, what are your core values? What do you really believe in? And, like, you hear about culture and you hear about these different things. And my first year was all about the ships. I want to win a championship as a team. And I want to get scholarships as an individual. How do we do that? I came up with as many words as I possibly could. They ended in ship. It was, uh, you know, craftsmanship, getting better every day. Battleship was competing. Ownership in your life. Um, you know, I can't even remember. I'm offhand anymore. Leadership was one. Um you know, all about the ships. And it was a cool slogan that went really well. And that year was the year I told you all those crazy stories. And we just didn't have a lot of gratitude. Like, and I, I genuinely believe that gratitude raises your awareness and makes you um, a better person if you're more grateful and thankful and you write things down and you're, all the things that you read about leadership and, and most successful people is they have a high level of gratitude. Very thankful for their opportunities. And I'm one of those people. So my second year, I was grateful. Gratitude. Great. Uh, grit, respect, attitude, toughness, effort, future, unity, love, we learn. It's too long. Too long. And so I sat there and Vince is like, we got to find a way to like, what, is, what do you believe? What do you really, really believe? And he really challenged me. He's like, we're going to talk about it tomorrow. I want you to write down any words that you believe in and we're going to put them in a bucket. So we literally wrote, I wrote down like my 20 something most, what I believe in the most. And we condensed it down to passion, humility, and discipline. And it's who I am. It's literally who I am. And a lot of people are like, oh, I got this slogan. I put this quote on the wall. This is how I live my life. If you, if you filmed me every day, I would genuinely believe that you would want to record, replicate, and repeat what I'm doing. Passion, PhD is the highest level of education. It's a doctorate degree. My goal in my program is to get a guy degree on and off the floor through basketball and through education. Passion to me, if you don't have passion or love what you do or spread that joy or, um, you know, just like kind of hard to like explain and bleed passion. But I, I this is this is what I genuinely believe. OK, and I just went over this with my new team. I believe that passion never wears a watch. So what is your why? What is your purpose? In order to be successful and have passion or flip flip that to show passion, you have to love, you have to care, and you have to commit. And so those are those were different words that I believed in, but they fit in the bucket of passion. If you love what you do, you're going to do more for it. If you want it bad enough, you're going to work that much harder. Okay, then it's humility. A lot of people believe in humility. It's not about me. You know, a little bit of that's like Thomas and the religious factor. But if you have a major ego, everyone's got a little ego. Let's say you don't have ego in your life. You got a little bit of swag, a little bit of ego. I believe in that. But it can't, you're the chief interpreter of your own awareness. And I believe wholeheartedly, especially living in the South and especially being at JUCO, is that people don't have good awareness of who they are, 
who they're becoming and what they've done in their past. And I think that humility kind of goes along with that. So being grateful, being respectful, being coachable, being teachable, being a leader, not a follower. And this, this, so humility to mean is literally this, if, you, if I could maybe explain, you're immune to praise. Like if I compliment you, you don't, whether I say all these great things about you, it doesn't affect you. You're unaffected by criticism. So when I coach you hard or I yell at you or I get upset with you or someone says something to you that you take personal, um, sensitivity equals poverty. You're unaffected by criticism. You're open to feedback. So if you were to tell me hey, after this is over, like, hey, you should have set up. Okay. You know, I'm open to feedback. I'm coachable. I'm teachable as a human. And I model that way for my players. And then on top of that, you take action. Life rewards action. If you learn anything from this podcast, there's another one. Life rewards action. You got to do it. Alan Stein says, you know, performance gaps. It's one thing we know what to do and then we don't actually do it. We got to shrink that gap. Tom McCavis, James Clear. How to evolve into the next one. Discipline. So discipline to me, took it from Heather Macy. Ability to do the same thing over and over again with no regard to circumstances or environment. So no matter where you are, no matter what, how you feel, it doesn't matter. Actions over feelings. It requires maturity to be disciplined. You have to eliminate distractions. Distractions are issues or drama that takes you away from your goals. It takes hard work, consistency, toughness, not rationalizing your behaviors, not blaming, complaining, making excuses at discipline, accountability, ownership. Those are all words that I had on my list that I turned into a bucket of discipline. Empty your tank every day. If you come in, we talk about, we have face scores, so uh, focus attitude, communication, effort, all controllable behaviors. Your disciplines get there. Effort, attitude, focus, making great decisions, and everything you do matters. Every day is game day. Discipline. And so that's how I come up with my core values. I live it. The guys know I'm passionate. That's why I'm a deep, I like to think I'm a good recruiter. I've recruited really good players. Just have one at the level. Maybe I'm a shitty coach, but I'm a good recruiter. Core values. And for this recruiting class, guess what? I got to ask them, how, how do you fit in these values? I couldn't do that. In this. I didn't have a choice. I had to recruit the best players because if I didn't, they were going to go to Pearl River or Jones or Northeast and beat me. They did anyway. The <laughs> Being able to ask these questions made me a better recruiter. It made it so they fit me better. And then I'm able to beat out people that are better than me because it's people over things. And if you value those things, then you are authentic. I am present. I know my core values. I know what I believe in. And I'm getting better as a basketball coach. So, you know, eventually your behaviors come before your success. And I think that that's where I'm I'm close. I'm ready to bang down a door. I just need a little bit more time in my day or better focus one or the other. That's it's going to be in a book. Um, I think Heather Macy's going to put it in her next book. So we did a... It'll be really cool. Um, she texted me today and asked me if she can put it in there. I'm like, yeah, I'd be honored. Awesome. Heather's great. You know, despite the stigma for JUCO, you mentioned your teams have flat out gotten it done in the classroom. You guys, not just record-breaking you know, achievements on the floor, but academically. Why do you think there's a negative stigma regarding JUCO players? Uh, don't be judgmental. Be curious. 
everyone's got it in them. They don't know how to get it out. People have the answers to all their questions and all their problems inside them. Asking impactful questions gets it out of them. Junior college, the grading system in higher ed is unique. Every school is different. Every place in the country is different. Every teacher is different. Everyone has different standards. Everyone has different lines. What you cross, what you're willing to do, how much a tutor helps you, how much they don't help you. What teacher, when you have four English teachers and you, you there's two that you can't pass and you know that those kids can't pass that class, you don't put them in those classes. Also, there's a, a 12 credit rule in junior college. Most two-year degrees are 64, 62, 60 plus. You take 12 a semester for four semesters, you're 48. It's not enough. So how we did this at Southwest is we put kids in more credits than they need. With that, it may be a class or two that was pretty easy to get them an A, to help them with their GPA, to get them above that 2-5 transferable. We took real classes that transferred. We didn't mess around with any other class that didn't transfer. Remedial classes, same thing. We put them in the remedial classes they were supposed to be in. Instead of putting you in a college algebra, getting an exemption, blah, 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 we actually put them in the class. And the first two classes, they always, always went to class. Even if they wanted to take online, nope, you got to learn it. That would help you build a foundation for what you needed. We would do meetings once a week. We did team study halls at least two days a week. They went to tutoring. They had to go. We treated academics just as serious as we did basketball. Still didn't always work at the next place. Because guess what? They would go to the next place. And things weren't always the same. Or someone wasn't, you know, not helping. But like someone wasn't preparing them or telling them where to go. And I've slowly evolved my philosophies in the classroom. So what you you laugh at this, but each year my GPA went down, but my success rate at the next place went up academically. So I know that I was doing a better job of preparing these guys for their futures. All of them graduated. The one part is, you know, we would meet every Sunday and we'd go through their canvas. The one thing that's a benefit about 2022 is that all their homework's online and you can see when it's due. If you never turn in a late assignment and you go to class, there's no reason why you can't get a C in college. And so that combination made it successful in the classroom. Um, also filtering out good students. We didn't have a lot of non-qualifiers and that's why I had 10 guys sign division one after one year is because they were qualifiers. The team I have now, I only have one non-qualifier. So how we've, now it's easier to qualify now because of COVID. You don't need the ACT and you just need the core GPA. But with that in mind, think about that. So if you're dealing with smarter kids, you're going to have higher grades. Also, if you hold them accountable and the standard is the standard and that's what you believe in. And I think every job is different. Here at Ellsworth, they value community. So we have already done more in the community than I did in five years in Southwest. And I've only been here for 120 days. And I think every school you value certain things. Some value just winning some value graduation, some value academics, some value community. And you can't lose and have bad people, bad, and have bad, like bad. You have to pick one that you're really good at. So at Southwest, where we could serve our community the best was doing well in the classroom. And so it started with Thomas and I continued the trend and Corey Schmidt, the new head coach is gonna do the same thing. So for seven, eight years, I think in a row, we had the highest GPA in the state. 
and we graduate all our players. And that helped us in recruiting because we didn't have the nicest gym. We probably had the 11th best gym out of 15. We didn't have the best scholarships. We actually had the worst. We gave the least amount of pellback of everyone in the state. Uh, our location was decent, but not perfect. Um, you know, our dorms were pretty good. Our food was okay, but we weren't Pearl River. We weren't Jones. We weren't like Southwest was probably the 10th, 11th best job out of 15. And we were continuously in the top four to eight every year in the 19 team region of us in Louisiana. So, you know, with that, like we were able to do more with less by accomplishing things of getting guys to the next level by far kicked everyone's butt in that we had more than double everyone in the state division one players and then academically but i didn't keep them for two years by not keeping them for two years guess who guess who didn't win <laughs> but guess who did my players and that's what you do so you know our players got what they needed they went on the next level but we didn't i didn't keep them for two years i didn't intentionally put them in classes and fail them i didn't I didn't hold them back. I didn't keep them for three years during COVID. Every single guy that had his degree, I told them they couldn't come back. It's not best for your future. Go sign division two. Like, who cares? You know, that's that's what you got to do. And that's what we did. I couldn't agree more, coach. I'm with you on that. Yeah, I've been fortunate enough to be around the Davidson men's basketball program last season. And I think highly of Bob McKillop, as I think everybody does. How do you get connected with them, and what's your best story and or impression of Coach McKillop? Mm. So Bob McKillop is New York through and through. Um, I met him in 2008. 2008, I was a uh, manager for USA Basketball. If I could go back and change another thing in my career, it would have been how I handled myself at the training camp. But I was there for 10 days. Um Bob McKill was a head coach. Anthony Grant was an assistant coach. John Thompson III was assistant coach. And they have on-court coaches. I'm trying to think who else was there. Ernie Kent? Greg Davis, I think his name is. Who was the coach at UC Davis? What was his name? You don't know offhand. Me either. A um, couple of Juco guys, a couple of D2 guys. Tubby was on that. Jim Beheim, uh, Wojo. Uh, so they, I was there for three days for training camp. And we cut the roster from like 25 to like 15. And then I was there for another week. It was in BC. And so I got to work with Coach McKillop. And I just watched how he did things. And I'd always liked watching Davidson. So just because of Steph Curry. Then when they made that run, so I was at Minnesota. Well, they played Wisconsin. That was before Synergy. So I had every game, every scout. So when they went to play them, I sent everything I had the Jim Fox everything literally everything just sent it to him and they ended up being Wisconsin and we just kind of stayed in contact but Bob McKillop it always like offered up references you know people say oh I'll be your reference I'll help you I'll get you a job and so that first year right out of college he helped me interview at a couple places I interviewed with Ed Conroy didn't get it I interviewed with um Belmont Abbey which he helped me I didn't get it I don't even remember some of these anymore like it's been so many of them but, you know, three or four jobs. And then, you know, when Fox got the job, he was helpful in, in getting me that job. I, I just, that's how I got to know Coach McKillop. Stories, I mean, like, he just had, like, a unique power with his New York accent and his ability to, like, like, he was a badass. Like, he would make you feel stupid if you didn't know what you were doing. Like, 
and in a good way, but the dude was so smart in what he did, but there's only one Bob, Bob McGill. And I hope and pray, and I haven't had many conversations with Matt since he got the job, but I may give him a call just to like, just touch base with him and just like remind you, like be you. Like, I think, you know, I love coach Fox and I'm very grateful, but I think part of him wanted to be more like Bob McKillop and we would copy things rather than maybe, I want to say not knowing, but that's all he knew too. I've been fortunate to work for seven different head coaches. Well, my perspectives are going to be different. And I think that knowing who you are as a head coach, you have to be you. You can't be someone else you work for. And I think like there's times where that's where it was, but he was, he was, uh, you know, really detailed and everything. Like, I feel like I know Bob just as well because Coach Fox, we did everything that Davidson did, like literally to a T. I could probably go into Davidson's practice, name all the drills, could name all the plays. I could name like literally everything. Now he's probably changed over the last like five, six years and like some of the play calls and stuff, but like the play calls for out of bounds plays were one, two, three with alignment. And then you touch your head or your shoulder or here or your knee or socks or any of that. Bogarting, the terminology. We had a freaking book of like a hundred words. Man, like he gave it to me the test and I had been in the program. I wasn't there like the first month and a half because I hadn't got hired yet, but he gave us a terminology quiz and me, I remember me and Mark sitting in that office and of like the 90 words or hundred words, like we didn't know like a third of them. Like we never used this. I don't know what it is, but it was all terminology from. In the fall of 2020, you're selected to participate in the inaugural JUCO top connect where you were recognized as one of the top JUCO coaches in the country. How rewarding was it? And what were some things that were learned? I'm not attached to outcomes. It was cool at the time. It was a cool thing to put in your resume, Twitter. Honestly, like being recognized on those lists and stuff, a lot of times it's political. And I'm not saying I wasn't deserving. There's a lot of people that were deserving. But there was a couple of people on that selection committee that I knew personally. And when they when they got to pick who they thought, and I knew both of them really well, and both of them, I was one of six guys out of like the 40 or whatever that was on both lists. But I knew both the guys really, really well. My network is huge because of recruiting, because of video, because of rising coaches. Um, and I genuinely try and stay in contact with people. I wouldn't say I'm the best. But when someone texts me, I text them back. When someone calls me, I call them back. When someone writes me an email about a player, I try my best to respond. It's at the point where I can't all the time. Same thing with Twitter. A young coach calls me and wants to know something. I hit them back. I help people get jobs. I would pride myself in getting people to the next level, helping people. If you help, 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 help. Humility. You're going to get paid on the back end, and that's not why you do it, but that's how it works. Top Connect was cool. They did a good job. Met a couple coaches, did some speed dating. Crazy story. Not going to say who it was, but I got paired with a coach. He's like, yeah, I'm going to help you. I'm going to help you. Gets a job that spring. Calls me. Sets up a Zoom interview. Like I thought I was going. And uh, ghosted me on the interview. Never ever again. He tells it those things don't matter. Authentic relationships matter. How you treat people matter. And, uh, you know, that's 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 what I would say about it. Top Connect was cool. Another thing to put on my resume. Rising coaches are cool, but those are real people to help me that I can call and have my back. 
that's what good uh, support systems do. And, you know, obviously, like, there's a lot of lists out there. I mean, how do they know? Spend 10 minutes with me and then let me know if you think it's the same. Well, Coach, you've had a couple guys, uh, friends of mine, work for you. Talk about the first one, Corey Schmidt. I know he joined your coaching staff at Southwest, ended up uh, taking over after you left. What stood out about him when you were looking to hire him as an assistant coach? I, uh, it's funny. When I first hired my first staff, um, I kind of, I wouldn't say I persuaded, but I really wanted Jeff Diebenbrock to join my staff because I felt comfortable with him and he knew some stuff that I didn't know, zones and different things. Brought him in. When I was going through that process, I interviewed like five or six different people. And um, one of them was Reggie Chambers for the top assistant. And he was fortunate enough to come to be the part-time guy. And uh, then there's a guy that worked our camps, Bryce Woodliffe. Uh, at App State, had a ton of energy juice. He was really good on the floor. A young guy, up and coming, played D1. Like, good, really good young coach. And so he was my volunteer my first year. All young. We made our mistakes. We grew a lot. I mean, we did a good job. Uh, Bryce uh, ends up getting a full-time job at a prep school. Um, so I took that and then um, brought in Vince. And uh, Vince was my quote-unquote volunteer, Thibodeau. And I've talked about him on this podcast, but very influential in my life and um, did a really good job. And then COVID hit. And I, what I did is I told these guys, like, we don't know if we're going to have a season. We left March 6th of 2020 and we never returned back to campus um, as a staff until August, end of August, when fall started. And um, my wife was pregnant already. And so we just stayed away from people. And uh, I would drive Grubhub and I studied leadership and I listened to podcasts and I did Zoom calls and I did like what a lot of people did. And I, I took r and um, I've never relaxed in my career. Why I'm telling you all this is so Jeff, Dean Brock, I told him, like, hey, man, I don't know if we're going to get money. He was making like 37000 Like, you need to go get another job. You need to start working. Same thing I told Reggie. Reggie had a CDL. Reggie was making like sixty grand at FedEx. It said thirty grand in the dorms. Jeff got a job with that. Uh, he's doing Uber Eats, and then he got involved with some people in Houston. He went and lived in Houston. And uh, he ends up getting a recruiting job for a, a healthcare company. And he made... I'm not going to say that amount, but almost 200 grand <laughs> last year. So he got out of coaching, went from 30 to a lot. Reggie was driving, doubled his salary. And so he took a year off from coaching. And so I had two positions open. So I bumped Vince up. Vince went from volunteer to full-time. Um, and uh, Zach Barnes was my other assistant. Zach played at Southwest for Thomas and Andy and had just finished at Mississippi Valley. I basically brought him in for an interview and he wanted the job so bad. Like, he's like, can I have it? And I want it. I want it. I was like, it was almost like pressured into like hiring him. And I liked him a lot. And I was like debating between a couple other people. He wanted it so bad. I hired him as a two volunteer. So I was looking for that middle spot to be in the dorms. And Corey had just got let go at wake in a weird situation. And I didn't know him at all. Um, Jeff knew him. And Jeff worked with me for two years. And if you call Jeff now, me and Jeff are really close. But at the time, like, I would say like I was hard on Jeff and uh, wasn't always in the best relationship, I guess. Um, very mutual, respectful. And, you know, if he got married one day, like I guarantee you, like we're very close. But he he would uh, he knew how I worked. 
And he said Corey would be a good fit. He knew Corey a little bit. Corey was in New Orleans. His girlfriend's there now. His wife um, was down there. And it kind of worked out for him financially. Uh, you know, anytime you can hire a Division One caliber person for, quote, unquote, you know, low money, um, it's a gold mine. Corey knew a lot about basketball. His roommate in college was Drew Hamlin. Um, really good player development. Uh, really good guy. New video. Organized. Had been an ops guy. Like, had New Orleans ties. He was a perfect hire. Really loved him. Um, and then I bumped him up to the full-time spot when Vince took a Division II full-time job. So a lot of guys have been on my staff and got better jobs. But um, Corey, you know, it, it was a challenge getting Corey that job, not because of Corey, but just like all the other factors that go along with, you know, just getting a job. And he was younger and, um, you know, he too was not a Mississippi guy and you know, different challenges, but uh, Corey's going to do a really good job. I would say wholeheartedly he knows more about basketball than I do. Um, we are a good combination. Um, every year or every month, I would say almost he got better at speaking in front of the group and stuff, getting reps. That's what I tell young coaches is like, hey, you got to coach, you got to recruit, you got to coach, you got to recruit, but you need the reps on the floor, um, talking, communicating. Um, it's at the point now where I can go and step in front of a group and I don't need as much preparation, if any where, you know, when you first get that first job, you need all those reps you can get to feel comfortable talking in front of people. And uh, of course, it'd be really good. I'm wishing him nothing but the best, did the best we could to load him up, get him as much everything we could. Um, you know, I, I will be watching a lot of Southwest games and being a part of that journey. And we still talk. You know, at first, it was every day. I would say it's probably down to like two days a week now. Um, he just sold my washer and dryer, so that was big. <laughs> So I was excited when he told me I got another three hundred dollars coming. That's <laughs> good. That's awesome. You know, this past April, you're introduced as the head coach at Ellsworth Community College. Yeah, I'm curious, were there any other schools that you were in the mix for that accorded you, and what was it specifically about Ellsworth that made it too good to pass up? A loaded question. I I've been close. In a lot of things in a lot of time and i couldn't tell you why i didn't get them i always look for a reason why and i and i just wanted that answer and that clarity when i didn't get a job in the mac i didn't get the assistant job in the horizon i didn't get the assistant job in the summit league and i didn't get the head job at three national jucos that are top 10 programs in the country filtered through hundreds of people and get down to the end, and I didn't get the jobs. I could sit here and guess why I didn't get them. But Ellsworth, for some reason, was different. Um, just like, you know, hoopdirt.com, believe it or not, found it on hoopdirt. Like, didn't know where Ellsworth was. Googled it. We and my wife were in Cancun. I, uh, she, on her work trip, and uh, we had just, like, had a break. I didn't have my phone most of the trip, which is rare. Um so Google Ellsworth, find out a little bit about it. I'm close to Jeremy Capo, the AD at Iowa Western. Um, I asked him about the job. He's like, oh, I know the AD. You want to call him? I was like, sure. Very rare you get the cell phone of the AD. Call him up, you know, talk to him a little bit. He goes, you kind of what we're looking for. You should apply. And I was like, okay. So go down the line, apply. There's like some interview situations going on where some guy was supposed to go to Iowa on a trip and I met the booster in Minneapolis when I was up there for spring break, no one knew I was up here. 
did the interview. Um, I was just what the fit was for them. Um, here at Ellsworth, you have two jobs. I'm also the director of housing and residence life and our director of residence life and student engagement. Um, not necessarily what I would say would be like my dream case scenario, but the job itself with the money to get better players and I'm two and a half hours from Minneapolis, which is where once I claim it as home, but my wife's from the South Metro and it was a really good fit for me personally and professionally. Um, I was able to dip into relationships I haven't ever been able to. I was able to recruit internationally, um, had enough resources to hire a staff. Um, I really like the people and I still do. Um, and I think that makes a huge difference in where you work is your overall happiness when you go home. The neighbor, like the town is awesome. Smaller town. I mean, obviously I want some other things, but like at the end of the day, like good place to raise a family, six parks within like a three mile radius of where we are. Midwest, the weather doesn't bother me. Um, there's a little bit more money. Um, you know, just a lot of good factors. And it got me out of Mississippi. And I'm not saying like, I'm not grateful or thankful for that opportunity, but Brian Bender is a Midwest person. It doesn't mean I can't survive in other locations, but just like recruiting, it's about fit. And I don't know if I was a perfect fit at Southwest Mississippi. And uh, I think it takes maturity to say that because we did some really good things. I'm not saying I was running because I wasn't necessarily running, but this job fits Brian Bender. I also get to make more impact on people because housing, I have conversations with students every day of the, you know, 400 students that live on campus. I know first and last names of all of them on paper but I probably know 250 of them personally and where they're from. And I feel like I make a greater impact. And that's what my job is, is to make an impact. I also teach. I've also really enjoyed teaching. Um, so I teach a sports psych and like kind of a leadership psychology course, which I have enjoyed, you know, a couple of PE classes for a little extra money, but it's been good. I just enjoy the day-to-day -day challenges. And I think that taking a step back as a leader and learning from everything you know, being able to handle different situations and scenarios and growth, um, conflict management, God, this ain't nothing compared to my first year Juco team. So, you know, I, th I think that just give it a little time, time, space, and opportunity he cures a lot of things. And I just think that this is, this is a right fit for me at this time. No doubt. Ben Tanoff, another friend of mine and friend of the podcast, left Presbyterian to join your inaugural coaching staff at Ellsworth. Talk about that relationship, how you two got connected, and has anyone on the team been able to beat him in a sprint yet? Ben Tanoff, uh, I joked, if he didn't go to freaking Israel to coach, I gave him a month off to go coach in Israel. Um, no, he uh, he went to Israel to coach, and we we had a 5K at the school. That dude would have won that 5K. That guy can run. Um, I don't know if he's a sprinter, but that guy can run cross country for miles and miles and miles. Um, ben crazy story so rising coaches he um i don't know how he got connected with rising coaches but he has some media and graphics background social media and um you know photoshop things like that and so we got connected in the meet two program or two i don't know what the terminology is but every month you would meet two coaches and you get paired up with random people and i got paired up with him and i think he was at the school in maine at the time and he was saying like you know, I really want to coach and different things. And I've always been one to say, what's your niche or your niche or whatever you want to call it? What are you good at? What, what problems do you solve? And if you don't know what problems you solve, 
then why would anyone hire you? And I say that not to be a prick about it, but talking with Ben, I said, what are, what are your, what's your, what are you really good at? Because social media or like the graphics thing. I said, what separates you from everyone else is your social media. Like that ability to do Photoshop. I said, you know what I would do? I would send your portfolio of Photoshop and say, you want to be a recruiting something. You want to be a part of a staff to every high major. The only people that can afford you are high major. So do it. Georgia Tech hires him like two months later. Craziest story in the world. So I never met Ben. And I saw him at the Final Four. I got the job like the Thursday of the Final Four, but it wasn't going to get approved until Tuesday. So I couldn't tell people. It was freaking wild. And so... I met him at the final four and I think he had a couple beers because like he didn't really recognize me. I was like, dude, hot, dude, I feel like I've had a big impact on your career and different things. And like, you know, and then I posted the job, it went viral like that Tuesday or whatever, not viral, but it hit hoop dirt, your phone goes. Um, and so I posted the job and it actually pays pretty good. And, but the, you're also the dorm guy. So, um, you know, I thought I could get a really good candidate. And so there's one guy I really, really liked and I wanted to work with him for a long time and I offered him a job and he didn't want to come. And then um, I legit opened the job. And so I got 146 applicants. And I'm not sure why, but um, went through it, narrowed it down about 10 off paper. And Ben's name was in there. I was like, why the heck does he want this job? Like, why? And so we had a couple of conversations and I like slowly, like he grew on me, grew on me, grew on me. And I was like, yep, Ben's, Ben's what I need here. He's more organized than me. He keeps me organized. He knows how to um, do some things I don't, you know, he fit some needs I wanted. He's a really good worker. He's loyal. He's a good human being. He was really excited about the job. And I'm not saying like, maybe I'm different, but someone that's like passionate hey humble and he's disciplined and it's been a really good working relationship I, i'm really glad he's here i'm here to serve him as well so like he needed more reps on the floor um you know he needs he's he's still i wouldn't say green but like a little greener on the floor compared to off the floor like his off the floor oh he's ready he's ready to be a coach right now it's the on the floor like reps different things and so not saying that i know all everything but i'm going to be able to help him and I'm hopeful that whether he's the next head coach here or if we can get him a four-year full-time position uh, as an assistant coach somewhere, I think that he can help somebody and he's done a really good job. So really thankful Ben's here and um, yeah, it's been good. Um, we joke a lot and he's not a morning guy. I'm more of a morning guy. He's a night guy. It's working out great. Um, yeah, he's doing a great job. Last question before we get to start bench cut. If you don't mind me asking Talk about your relationship with your father, his condition, and, and what he's taught you over the years. So, father passed Memorial Day of 2016. So, coming up on, it was just six years. Died of ALS, um, Lou Gehrig's disease, terrible disease, don't wish it upon my worst enemy. Um, learned a lot about the disease think in time I'm not saying i don't have time or i should i guess this is bad to say someday i hope to really get back to that disease in the research i'm not in a position financially where i think it could do great good but you know raising that awareness i have it right here with me 
long story short, I just wear this bracelet, Lou Gehrig's disease bracelet. Um, Vince Thibodeau was wearing it when I met him. Maybe that's a sign. But he was always a coach. Um, coached me growing up, soccer, baseball. Didn't know much about basketball. Supported me, loved me, cared about me. He was a passionate guy. Uh, very humble person. Um, worked really, really hard. And I think that's where my core comes from. Blue collar work ethic, farm world, things like that. On the flip side, there are certain things about my father that were not perfect. One of which is he's a poor communicator in a relationship. So I came from a split family. My wife came from a split family. I pride myself in being an unbelievable communicator because of your heroes don't always have to be good. They can also be bad or learn lessons from that. So lessons I learned were the good, were the passion, the humility, the working really hard, um, being a good person. The bad were financial management and communication. And I think like I try to make sure that I don't fail in the departments that he did and succeed in departments at a higher level than what he did. Um, but yeah, I'm very grateful for him and you know, my family and different things. I think everybody leaves an impact and everyone enters your life in a certain capacity and not to get too deep on it. But, you know, I think our love for what we do comes from something, you know, whether it's him or my uncle or coaching or an experience that you have good or bad. Um, I didn't always have the greatest coaches growing up. And that was one of the reasons why I like to coach is that I had some really good teachers and to me, coaching is teaching. And so if I wasn't coaching, I'd be teaching. If I wasn't teaching, I'd probably be in sales and not get to do all three. And, um, you know, those are, that's who I am. And it's kind of evolved into it. And thanks for asking. Um, you know, you don't always think about it. You know, as time goes, you think about people who, that aren't around as much. So the impact that they lead and like things like that. But that's like, you know, I've lost some people in my life. But there's not a lot of male role models that I have left. And so at 35, it's kind of unique. Um, and so I think that's a purpose that I serve, um, not only for my players, but a lot of people. And I want to be there for my daughter. And there's like, a, there's a video, Ed Milet video. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Um, it's about making your reasons bigger. And it has to do with your why and your purpose. And in the video, he talks about he says um, something about this new scan of your heart. And um, it was like an Oprah Winfrey show and it showed all the different things on it. And the doctor came in and the doctor said, you know, uh, do you have any kids? He's like, yeah, I got a, I got a daughter. Uh, well, do you want to be um, at your daughter's wedding someday? And the guy's like, Ed goes like, what the fuck's on the scan? What, what's going on here? And uh, the doctor said, well, if you want to be at this wedding, you know, an average doctor would say, yeah, get on this medicine, this medicine, this medicine, nice knowing you, you know, see you later in six months. This doctor understood reasons and leverage. And I think if your reasons are bigger and you know why you do what you do and who you do it for, it makes you a better leader and a better person. And I think that's not saying I do it for my dad or I do it. A lot of people have different reasons, but understanding what makes people tick and go has changed my life. And I think that's the best way to relate to young people. 
and to motivate them when they're ready to quit. Why are you wanting to quit? Is it because it's hard? Is it because you need something back home? And you see so many guys, especially in the first two weeks of school, oh, I got issues back home. I got issues back home. I need to go do this. I need to take. No, rule number one is you, you make your, you never make yourself number two. How do you not make yourself number two? You got to picture your health as a priority that you're taking care of yourself and being the best you you can before you can help other people. Well, people need help learning themselves first. And I think that's what's taken me the longest learn lesson to learn. And even though I'm young, I'm not old, but I don't know what I am, but that's something that I think I took from, you know, overall perspectives of life from my dad or from other people that have helped me. And that's my goal moving forward is to keep doing those things, living out those core values, effort, attitude, focus, communicating the right way. And then in our society where we love these things, passion and present, <laughs> let's just be present where we are and listening. And so, there you go. That's all I got for you. I love it. Coach, we've come to the start bench cut segment brought to you in part by Fast Model Sports. I'm going to give you three things. You start one, bench one, and cut one. Nike, Adidas, Under Armour. I'm cutting Under Armour. I'm probably uh, benching. I'm a Nike guy, but I've been at Adidas schools the last five years. I, I, I'll start Nike anyway, and uh, I'll bench Adidas for now. Glory Road, Coach Carter, loving basketball. Ooh. I will start um, Coach Carter. I will Bench, Glory Road, and I will cut. What's that? Love and basketball. Good movie. Just old, you know, old, old. Oh, fair enough. Uh, twins, Timberwolves, Vikings. Ooh. I hate the Vikings the most, so they get cut. <laughs> um, I guess I would pick the Timberwolves. So I'm a, I'm a Bears fan. You know, I'm a Chicago and St. Louis. My dad's from St. Louis. My mom's from Chicago. So I was born in Chicago. So I'm those teams, but I would start the Minnesota Timberwolves. I would bench the uh, Twins, and I would cut the Vikings even because my wife loves the Vikings. It's getting under her skin. She's eating our daughter's skull. I mean, come on, man. We gotta, we gotta cut that crap out. I uh, being a Chicago guy, Jordan, Pippen, Rodman, uh, in that order, right there. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how you can't compete with that. Uh, the reason why I love basketball is because uh, Michael Jordan. Um, that documentary was like perfect for me. I was, I, that 98 team was like, or that 96 team, I had a calendar and every, I would listen to the game till I fell asleep on snooze and sleep radio, you know, you hit sleep on those old school radios and they would turn off for 59 minutes and I'd, I'd move it to an hour or 59 and I thought I would get through the whole game and I'd wake up in the morning and I'd wait for it. Um, but yeah, Jordan all the way, you can bench Pippen and, you know, Rodden's crazy in his own right, even though he's a winner. Uh, Twitter follows. Last one. Hoop dirt, verbal commits, Juco advocate. Ah, uh, shoot. I can't answer. I'm not going to answer this. <laughs> Here's why. Brandon Goble, good friend of mine. He owns Juco advocate and, and verbal commits. He's a co-owner of both. Um, uh, and then hoop dirt, you know, Adam, Adam's helped me tremendously. Um, we tried to partner with him a couple of times with uh, rising coaches and things. And but he's always how I got this job. If Hooter didn't exist, I never would know that was what existed. And so, like, I'm appreciative of all three things verbal commits because recruiting, I've alerts on them every single one. Every time somebody does something, I know. 
uh juco advocate same thing brandon's a little funnier than most he, I, I love brandon and <laughs> he does a good job and then adam nelson like i knew it was adam nelson before he even came out of like saying who he was so um you know i'm appreciative of all three um twitter is my number one though i'm not answering that question i can't do it sorry Nah, you're good coach coach who are three guests i should have on the podcast three guests wilbur golo wilbur golo is at um what job did you just get was it's in michigan he just took a d2 job he's at butler he's a manager at michigan uh assistant at uw milwaukee wilbur golo um he can't you don't know who you're going to hire one day, but if me and Will ever work together, Will better watch out. I love him. Um, he's really good. Who else would I have on the podcast? Um, I had Vic Sefra as one of my guests from UNC Charlotte. Uh, he was really, really good. Um, I really liked him a tremendous amount. Um, and then the last one, he's not in coaching. Um, his name is Scott Savore. He's a rising coaches type guy a little bit, um, but Scott is a leadership coach. Changed my freaking life, man. This dude, so I heard him, it was December of COVID year, like before COVID existed. And uh, rising coaches was doing these Zoom calls. And it was like right when Zoom was starting, I was like, this is weird. But, you know, they had these random guests and he was like a leadership coach. I was like starting to get into leadership. And I heard Adam interview him. I really liked him. And I sent him a message. He's from Minnesota. So next time I got a chance to meet with him and then he helped me organize some of my uh, core values and such as well. So between him and Vince, they're a big indicator of that. And when I'm home, I try and meet with him. Um, I did a one month uh, paid him. You always pay people for their time. Did a one month workshop with him. Why I got this job is because of him. Why I'm a great interviewer is because of him how I changed my life is because of him. Half the quotes that I said in this thing, if you liked any of them, I wrote them down. I give credit to where it's due. He will come on this podcast and he will uh, change your life. He will blow your mind. Um, he's coming to speak to my team on October 4th and 5th. And he's going to speak to the whole town. So I love the guy. Um, my wife hates him sometimes because he, uh, she says I'm not as fun. So. <laughs> it's all good. I'd rather be a better leader than I would be fun. Um, but I like it helped me handle stupidity. It helped me with perspective. It helped me ask better questions. It helped me gain clarity. It helped me control what I can control. Um, he asked the hardest questions I've ever been asked. And so like if you can handle the hardest things thrown at you and then he sends me materials all the time. So I work with him, paid him, but like we still text and different things and he will send me things, um, materials. If I ever have any questions about anything, you give him a word, give me a word, give me a word that we face in coaching that may be a struggle. You got one? What's something that we face on a day to day? Like an issue with our team or something. So give me one. Jeez. Uh, accountability. Accountability. Perfect. So I'd say, Hey man, I'm really struggling with accountability with some of these players. Do you have any ideas? And so he'd be like, um, here's two graphics. Here's a video. What type of accountability? What are you trying to do? And so he'd have, he has like a slide deck of everything. And uh, it's really, really good. And so what I've actually done 
someday. I own a website, haven't put it out there yet. But I have a culture and uh, coaching stream. It's got 1,800 um, 1800 photos and 41 videos. And it's everything that I've ever seen on Twitter, Instagram, videos sent to me, saved videos of every topic. And one day, I'll take a week of my life and dedicate the whole week to it. And I will retype or regurgitate all this information of the best stuff there is. And I'm creating a website that has every coaching toolbox, leadership toolbox. So like, uh, envy, anger, pain, ego, patience, gratitude, courage, all these words that we face or that we think about. And then I'll have tools available for coaches and, um, someday I'll finish it. Someday's not a day, but like little graphics and nooks and like cracks and different things. Um, I've been doing it for two years. So I've gathered probably enough information every, every freaking thing that there is out there. And so then every year I do an audit on it and I cut out like half of it that I don't believe in. So that's what I've done. But if it weren't for Scott Savore, never would have. Awesome. Coach, if listeners want to get in touch with you, email, social media, what have you, what's the best way? It all goes the same thing. So if you wanted to text me or call me, 417-255-5829, I'll answer that. My number one form of social media is Twitter. Um, it's at Brian Bender. Brian Bender is with a Y, B-R-Y-A-N-B-N-D-E-R. And uh, don't get be mistaken. There's a writer for the Boston Globe, same spelling, Brian D. Bender. Um, we get each other's tags all the time. He's like, Whoa. he'll send me videos of basketball players and I'll send him uh, people mad about Trump and different things uh, that he writes about. Coach, appreciate the time. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Yep, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Beyond the Box Score podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, leave reviews, and rate five stars.